What we can do and what we are ethically called to do is create a space in our classrooms and schools where all students can walk in and for that day or hour, take off the crushing weight of their armor, hang it on a rack and open their heart to truly being seen. We must be guardians of a space that allows students to breathe and be curious and explore the world and be who they are. Dare to Lead, page 13. Podcast PDNC. Where it's not sit and get, it's listen and launch. Well, we are doing something brand new on podcast PDNC. Stacey, Chris, and Molly are all here, and we are having a conversation about a book that we are reading together. We figured it was best to kind of pause throughout our reading and reflect as we go instead of trying to do one podcast that's a full reflection of the book. I'm going to let Chris and Stacey explain what book we're reading and why. Well, first of all, Molly's idea to, to do it piecemeal, if you will, or a little bit at a time. I was a little reticent about it at first, but I didn't say anything. But now I realize why, because there's way too much information in this book. And the book itself is way too good to try to tie it into one podcast by itself. So if you know anything about Molly, you know that she's a huge Brene Brown fan. I never even heard of Brene Brown, full confession, until I met Molly. And now she's got me on the Brene train I listened to her podcast some. I have, you know, checked out her websites and done these things. But she's been preaching at me about this Dare to Lead book. And I am terrible about reading nonfiction informational books like this, you know, learning books, as I like to call them. I am more of a read for entertainment kind of person. So I've always thought, eh, I don't know about that, Molly. I'm not too sure that I'm ever going to get around to reading that, but I'll gladly listen to you. She kept kind of pounding this idea of dare to lead, dare to lead, dare to lead. And then she'd send me quotes and she'd send me little ideas from it. And well, you know what Brene says about this? Or, well, or sometimes Brene a full this. page. Like there were times yeah. I'd go to the shelf and take a picture of the page and be like, okay, yeah. read this page. Yes. We'd be having a conversation and she'd come in with something like, well, here, boom, and be like, oh man, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So when she pitched the idea of us reading Dare to Lead by Brene Brown, and I found out that, you know, that would be something that we could talk about. I jumped wholeheartedly on it. So that's my background on on how we ended up with this book. Me and Stacy like to joke with her that it's her fault we're reading this book. Stacy, anything to add to that? Well, like any good librarian, Molly knows how to find that little thing that will get you to read a book. So with me... Molly and I both listen to podcasts. Well, Chris too. Chris listens to podcasts too, but um, and but different kinds. Again, Molly got me listening to Brene Brown's um, podcast, and I'd be out there in the garden, you know, with my earbuds in, listening to Brene's podcast. And a lot of times, my earbuds, you know, falling into the dirt while I'm, I don't know, planting a tomato or whatever. So that was kind of my my gateway into the Brene Brown world. And so naturally, Dare to Lead on audio, of course, was uh, the next leap into this. So now I've got Dare to Lead on audio, Dare to Lead, the Kindle 
because I needed the words. I need to actually see the words and the workbook so that I could, you know, fill out and uh, reflect as I go. And here we are doing our own podcast on it. So as our future t-shirt is going to say, hashtag all the things. Yeah, I haven't yet bought the Kindle version of the book or the actual paper version of the book. That's going to happen. I can see that happening. So full disclosure, I've been listening to the audio book. Renee Brown has given a lot of free resources on her website that she talks about and recommends for people to go out and use when working through this. So my full disclosure is that we are not endorsed by Brene Brown. <laughs> we are not consultants of her Dare to Lead. She's got an initiative that does workshops and stuff. We're just, I'm like they said, I'm basically a fangirl. And I've read her work for many years now. And I just really believe the message that she puts out there is it applies beyond, you know, I think a lot of people know that she's a social worker and they think that, well, she's got this TED talk. So it's for CEOs and directors and presidents of companies and so forth. But, you know, she literally has a, you, you talked about workbooks, but she's got a website that includes a lot of resources specifically for how this fits in classrooms. So we're going to talk about parts one through three today. And in those parts, she, calls out educators and classrooms and the importance of, of leadership in a classroom. So we just wanted to reflect on what we've read. And as you could hear from both Chris and Stacy, they understand now where my love and appreciation for Brene Brown is coming from. So we knew that this would lead to a good conversation. And a lot of times with podcast PDNC, we're interviewing other educators and we get to hear their reflection process. But the three of us have kind of queued up those interviews rather than letting us kind of be the reflectors on the podcast. So that's what this is. It's a little bit more of a candid conversation between the three of us as we're learning and growing as innovative learning catalysts. You know, you hear a little bit about our opinions and our experiences and the things that we think when we're doing those interviews. But this is just a little bit more opportunity for us to kind of share our our viewpoint and hopefully reach out and maybe connect with some people on a different level, maybe, you know, other than just hearing us ask questions. Mm -hmm. All three of us believe one of the best parts about our job is that we get to learn. And those interviews are about that, that we get to learn from other educators, but we're very much learners. We're, we're going out in the field, as it said, learning and trying to grow ourselves. And this is just one step. We've actually read a few books as a team, as an entire division in the last year, but this is one that just the three of us are doing. So my question for both of you, last week when we first started talking about what were your thoughts, I asked which it was most memorable so far. And Stacy, so you had said people, 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 that people are just people, people, people. And you could talk about that or whatever else. And then Chris, you mentioned both the square squad and the marble jar. So I want to hear what in these first parts one through three has been the most memorable lesson learned so far. So two things that are funny about the people, people, people thing. The first one is that I was, in fact, planting kale at the time. So that's just funny because I. Well, it's I funny because you're the only person I've ever heard use the sentence planting kale. I know people who buy kale. I know people who eat kale. But you are the very first human that I've ever heard use the phrase. I was planting kale. So go ahead. Sorry. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So people, people, people. I really liked her story about that. She was talking in the book about getting ready to go give a, a talk to some people. She was super nervous about it. 
another person who was about to go on stage just before her just you know gave her this little boost of confidence and reminded her that that these people who were very upper level that she was about to speak to were just people and that just really struck home with me because I've been in that situation of about to go out and talk to a group, especially, you know, it, every everything from, you know, that first day of school jitters, you know, getting ready to meet your new class to I remember the first time I was asked to talk to a room full of parents and at the end of the year awards ceremony and being, for whatever reason, terrified to talk to parents, um, even though I've been talking to kids, you know, for for 10 years and just, you know, having to, so I, I I just remembered that, that nervousness that I had. And so when, um, you know, she said, you know, people, people, people just remind yourself, they're just people. I really like the idea. You said she was talking to like a a high level of people. It's always going to stick in my head now forevermore about the sea level. She was looking at it as C, like S-E-A. Like Like where I live in Dare County at sea level. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. She got freaked out because she realized that sea level meant, and I had never thought about this, that sea level meant CEO, CTO, CFO, CAO, those kind of things, all those chiefs. And that's what kind of freaked her out at first. And I, I too, have had that feeling before of, you know, Standing up in front of a certain group of people didn't bother me, but another group of people did, right? Like what Stacy was just talking about, you know, I, I, th- that first day of class jitters, but then after that, I'm good. But parent-teacher night, uh, you know, stand up in front of four or five parents in my classroom was a whole different thing. I could talk to my entire team of football players when I was a football coach, so I could have 65 people out there, and I'd, I'd be, you know, talking to them, and I was fine. At the awards banquet with all their parents and brothers and sisters and everybody else there, that was a whole different thing. Just that idea, and, and it plays into what we do um, in the trainings and things that we do. That we're just talking to people. That's it. We're you know we we are working with people who some of them are going through you know who knows what they're going through right, and who knows what kind of feelings they have about you know their own success or or you know what kind of things they're bringing. And and we'll talk more about what Brene talks about with these kind of things, you know, what their armor is as it were when we go through. But that was poignant to me as well. I've been thinking as I was listening to you that I think that we also know that we, when we are doing any kind of PD, when we're working with students, when we're talking to principals and people that can sometimes be intimidating, we're talking to people. We're not talking about ideas just because we think ideas are really good. We're talking about ideas that will impact people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, a hundred percent. Like when we're doing a training, they're not students as a collective. That's a person. That's an individual. We're trying to reach people. So I think that that's really important too, is that when I read that, I was thinking everything that, you know, you guys just said so eloquently, but as I was listening to you, I was thinking almost remember that that's a person. And she says that a little bit, like she was making eye contact with people because she was no longer stressed out about a spotlight and an audience. She was looking at the person and she was talking to a person. So that's what I was trying to throw in there. And one of the things that kind of relates to that, too, is that we hear a lot of times in education that when you go from elementary to middle to high school, that there's a little bit of a transition that happens that in elementary, a lot of times teachers are focused on teaching students and then somewhere as you transition through middle to high school, teachers a lot of times are very 
biased towards, I'm not quite sure if that's the right word, towards their content area. And when I first started, I was all about some science. You know, I majored in science. I loved me some science. And it took a while for me to realize, you know what? I'm all about some science, but unless you know those kids and you think about, I'm going to teach some eighth grade students, aka people, get to know them and form some relationships with them. And then maybe I can figure out a way to get them to learn some science. So the people had to come before, am I going to say the word mitosis? Yes. I'm going to work mitosis into every single episode ever. Such a perfect segue, though, because it's exactly what I think the square squad becomes, right? So you're not talking to people, people, people. You're talking to people and you're building relationships. Right. And so, yeah. So the square squad for me was like, I had never heard of that before. And I still think about it. And I'm not 100% sure how I would go about attacking it. Like I've sat down to do it three or four times and I haven't been able to totally do it yet. So the square squat idea was Renee Brown, she she says you take a one inch square piece of paper. So and on that piece of paper, you write down the the people that are that you can go to and that you trust. And Molly, you basically maybe, said that that people that will call you out when you're not right doing the right like when you're not living in your values, which is something we'll talk about eventually. When you need to be called out and they love you and will keep you on the right path despite the times that you might go off. So not people that are going to make you feel ashamed, but right. also the people who will just kind of keep it real. Not yes, men, you know, not those people are like every idea you have is a good idea, but also not the people who are like, well, you're terrible. And, and that's a terrible idea. And, you know, just stop having ideas, stop talking. It's not those people. So who is on your square squad? Who can you put on that one inch piece of paper? That's a really hard piece of paper to, to write on when you really sit down and try to do it. At least it is for me. I don't know if you guys have done it. I have yet to really be able to fill it in. I have like three people on it right now that, that are like, yes, these are the people. And then also then it, it's caused me to think in my head, I would strive to be on somebody's square squat. Like, I think it's important to have those people. And I think it's important to be that person. I'm not usually a kumbaya person, but it kind of makes you think. That is one of my values. That's what I want to be. And I would want somebody to call me out and say, you're not living to that value. You're just, you know, rolling along with the punches and and making everybody happy. And that's not necessarily what it's all about. I think that's very true about you. And when we get in the conversation about values, I think you just laid a lot of foundation work on how to narrow that down. But one thing I was thinking about when you said that is reflecting back on the really hard decision I made about becoming an ILC. This was an exciting opportunity, but I knew it was really going to change. Being a librarian was part of my identity. Stacy became a Square Squad person really quickly <laughs> because I had to call her and ask her all kinds of questions. There's literally one person I could call to say, what is this like? And Stacy was it. But I think of the other people I talked to, you know, who did I talk to? And those, because it took me a couple of weeks to make that decision, to be totally honest with you, that, it, you know, when I tell people that I still consider myself a librarian and I loved my job so much and I didn't want to leave the students, it really took me many, many days to make the decision. And I think of the people that I sat down and had conversations with, those are the people I think I would put on my square squad. They were the people I felt the most comfortable with, that these are the people I know I could go to and who would say the things I needed to hear, not the things I wanted to hear but the things I needed to hear and give me the right things to think about. So I think it's interesting as you're talking about that, how people morph sometimes in relationships, like 
your square squad isn't necessarily just all your personal best friends that you've had forever, but it's also not just your work friends. But when I think about mine, I have a mix of the two. I have friends that I've had for a long time outside of work, personal friends. But then I have people who started out as colleagues and somewhere along the way became that kind of friend too. Somewhere in that time became that square squad person. I can think of a couple who are absolutely on that list that, you know, if I call them at three o'clock in the morning because I'm stuck in a ditch, they're going to come get me. But if I also call them and I say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, this or this, you know, um, what do you think? And they'll tell me exactly what they think. And they'll tell me how they think it benefits me and how it doesn't benefit me. And, you know, they'll give me their opinion. And it's constructive, I guess, is what I'm looking for, as opposed to there's no judgment. There's none of that kind of stuff. But I also think it's necessary for you to have a mix of people on that squad. Well, I'm just sitting here listening to to all of that. As a person who, and, and Molly might be similar um, for you too, as a person who moved away, it's been a little bit harder to to keep in touch with the ones who knew you when. Because, you know, my when is, you know, they're far but looking at that, you know, when so creating that square squad and fitting them onto the, you know, a, a, a small piece of paper is been has been pretty hard. So my square squad is still in the air. I'm working on it, and and I agree that it's it's this mix of friends and family, work friends, family friend, you know, personal friends that have that kind of three o'clock in the morning, come get you out of a ditch kind of um, relationship. And then, you know, know enough about everything else to give you that, you know, no holds barred analysis of, yeah, you know, nah, you need to just suck it up and do that kind of thing. It's just interesting to look back and think about who I talked to. And I think that it also proves there's people who I feel like maybe before I made this decision would have been on my square squad, but because of the, the trust and honesty of the people who gave me the right direction, like kind of solidified their spot. Does that make sense? Like I think back and go, there's people, again, it was the people who really pushed me and they asked the right questions and gave me the very honest thought process instead of the ones who told me what I thought they thought I wanted to hear are the ones that kind of made I went from pencil to pen on the square squad. And I still don't know who all those, I don't have a, I don't have a square squad written down. We really should do that. And a lot of what both of you are saying, I think is, and what strikes me right now is, is your square squad ever really complete? No, it's going to change. It would be amazing to be that pen person on somebody's square squad. But what does it take to be that person? You know what I mean? Like, what does it take to have somebody be that person for me? And I really love that analogy, Molly, that you used about switching from pencil to pen. It's like, who are the pen people on there? You know, and and how does that work? Sometimes these things just come to me. What can I say? This is why we said we have parts one through three, (laughs) because we knew we would get into something and it was very relevant, which is great to talk about. But along those lines of kind of the transition of people, people, people to who's on your square squad, we need to talk a little bit about trust. So trust is what gets you onto that square squad. And another thing that Brene used as an example is she talks about her daughter 
And an example straight out of the classroom was a marble jar moment. It was funny because when Chris first talked about this, he called them jelly beans. And Stacey and I are like, actually, jelly beans would work because then if somebody really broke my trust and made me mad, I could just eat the jelly bean. Mm-hmm. And I'm all, I'm all in on the on changing it to jelly beans. The marbles, jelly yeah. beans, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I know we're going to talk about it a little bit, but to me, the big takeaway there is how do you build trust and how do you earn your spot on a square squad? Brene is a researcher of shame and vulnerability, and we're kind of being vulnerable, having this conversation and recording it candidly and putting it out. You know, you're just hearing the words that are kind of coming out of whatever this conversation takes a turn of. But can you guys want to talk a little bit about that marble jar and the trust building and that, you know, we have to be vulnerable Chris, do you want to describe the jelly bean slash marble jar? All right. So the marble jar idea comes from Brene's daughter's class. And what the teacher did in class was every time that the kids did something good, they would earn a marble. I'm going to break this down in very simplistic points. Okay. When they did something good as a class or whatever, the class would earn a marble. And if they did something bad as a class, they would not bad. But if they didn't meet expectations or whatever, they would lose a marble or multiple marbles or whatever. And so the kids became very invested in how full their marble jar was in class, because at the end of the day, if they had a bunch of marbles, it means that they had a great day. And Brene sort of translated that into this idea of the people in your life, the people who want to earn their way onto your square squad, if you will. You know, if you sort of visualize each of those people having a marble jar, then how does somebody earn a marble in the jar? And it's not necessarily always going to be that big event. It's not going to be that big thing that somebody did that they bought you a birthday present or, you know, they gave you a Valentine's card or something like that. While yes, that would get you a marble in the jar. Really your marble jar people are the ones who pay attention and remember and, and are there for you and truly care about you and, and what you're doing. And the example that, that she gives is she asks her daughter about who one of her friends would be. She's surprised by the answer that her daughter gives. And the reason her daughter gives the answer is because this person in her life remembered the names of her grandparents. And it wasn't like regular grandparents because, you know, it's a extended family or it's not yeah, yes. step-grandparent. So there's a whole lot of steps in there. So instead of, you know, two or four grandparents, there's like eight grandparents. But this child who wasn't in the family remembered the name of these grandparents when they were at a game. Okay. And that meant a lot to this child. And so for that child, that was a big deal. Is those kind of things that that earn you a marble, right? And so I started to think about this and this idea of, okay, well, you know, there are people who've done little things along the way. They've listened to me or they've given me a good piece of advice or, you know, they've just been there. They've remembered something, you know, said, hey, how how did Emma's play go or something like that when I didn't bring up Emma's play or, you know, Emma's my daughter. She's in theater. That's why I say that. You know, how's, how's Oscar? Oscar's my new dog. You know, something like that. When I don't bring them up, those are people who would earn a marble in the jar. And then the flip side of that is now it gives me a way to put into words when I'm in a situation where I have to take a marble away, you know, I'm like, Oh, okay. Now I understand why I feel this way. Like this person literally just lost a marble or, you know, I've had experiences lately where I've said to Molly and Stacy, basically I've just dumped that marble jar out. That jar is empty. Okay. There, there are no more marbles in that jar. I was still saying jelly beans, so they would have been eating them, but either way, 
That's the idea behind it. And so for me, it's just a more concrete idea of the people with the fullest jars are your square squad people. I sort of relate that back to that. So people, people, people earn their marbles, work their way to your square squad. That's sort of the triangle that I have in my head, you know, and in my mind, that's the path, I guess. So there's actually, I got to read, this is one of my favorite quotes because it sums up everything you just said. She says, trust is in fact earned in the smallest of moments. It is earned not through heroic deeds or even highly visible actions, but through paying attention, listening, and gestures of genuine care and connection. When we talk about a classroom, we, you know, because to the three of us, this, this is very relevant to the work that we're doing, but we see how important this is in a classroom too. And even though this idea came from the classroom, you can't have personalized learning, successful in your classroom without those connections, right? Without building that trust with a student and paying attention to the things. And again, as a librarian, I, I remember, you know, picking up little things that kids would ask for. And then three months later, I would say, hey, did you ever get that book about the um, alligator snapping turtle? <laughs> and the student would be like, you remember that, you know, and it's, that's the little moment of connection. It's just that I remember them asking one time and months later you come back to it. And I think that that's the thing that's going to really build those connections is that my teacher was listening. My librarian remembered my colleague paid attention, you know, like all of those are the little things that do add up. So it all flows that even though we're having this conversation about the three of us, it really flows into the classroom. It flows into the work that we're doing Stacey, I want to ask what your thoughts were on. I know you were reflecting for a little bit. Yeah, I was. So, and and I feel like there's levels. One of the things feel very overwhelming in the classroom, especially is in uh, middle school science teachers classroom. Sometimes you might have 100, 120 kids or elementary. You, we were talking last week about um, you know the number of IEPs you had to sign as a elementary librarian and high school teachers having, how many kids would you see in a semester, Chris? In a semester, yeah, 140 ish. Yeah. And then you know, next semester, an entire new batch. And so sometimes it can feel very overwhelming to think about this in terms of being on the square squad of that number of kids. So there, so I feel like it's levels almost where you look at moments of connection in your classrooms. And if we're all doing that, then between an entire faculty, then we'll accomplish that for our kids in, in some way, shape or form. The entire school is the container and our kids are coming in every day and they'll feel that there are opportunities for that connection that are going to happen in somebody's class for them. They'll feel seen in some way. That was like a perfect lead in, but Earlier, Chris, you used the word safe space and Stacy just said safe container. And that's something that is discussed a little bit in here is that idea of psychological safety that a lot of us have started using the term safe space, but you have to build trust. <laughs> you have to do the things that we've been talking about with connection until you can have, quote, a safe space. When we were talking a little bit before we started recording, we said, what is that idea of a safe space? versus a safe container, which I believe is what Brene calls it. What implications does that have with the classroom and, sc and school culture is what Stacy just said, that you do have to help build a safe container, that psychological safety for students in the classroom through those moments of connection, through trust building, because there's so many students that walk into a building and school isn't always a safe space. Or they walk around in the world 
and she talks about this idea of wearing armor and that we put not like physical armor, but the idea that we kind of armor up before we go out into the world or we, some kids, unfortunately are coming from situations where being at home, they have to wear armor because life at home is really hard. And then school is the place that they can take that armor off and be their whole authentic selves and be vulnerable and build trust and connection with adults and other students. So I, I want to take a minute and I want to circle back to, to something that Stacy had brought up earlier about safe spaces and safe containers and making those connections. Really what sparked it in my head was too what Molly said about the connection she made with kids, with students in the classroom or in the library the example she gave was mentioning to a, a student about, you know, the snapping turtles. Did they ever find a book about snapping turtles? And the student was super stoked because she remembered that about him. I think that that creating that safe space, those levels of safe space that Stacy was talking about, that we can't be that that square squad person for every student, but maybe as a team within a school, we can create that environment where those students, every student has a square squad. That takes me back to some of the experiences I had in class. And I taught high school Spanish. So spoiler alert, not every kid in high school is really passionate about Spanish. Crazy, I know, but they're not. Sometimes they just get put in there. And it takes me back to a student that I had a long time ago. You know, in high school, you have all the clicks. And I would say that this particular student was was an outlier. He was a cool kid, but he, you know, he wasn't in that real popular group. He wasn't. You didn't see him like hanging out with a whole bunch of people. He was just kind of quiet. It was hard for me to get him engaged in class. I couldn't figure him out. And then one day I was checking homework and I saw a sticker on his notebook from a TV show that I really liked. And I just mentioned something to him about the TV show, sort of off the cuff to let him know that that I knew what I was talking about, but also to sort of test him to see if he really liked it or if he just liked the sticker. That lit the fuse right there. That got him engaged in what I was talking about. I'm not saying he loves Spanish. I'm not saying he got a hundred in the class, but it did at least keep him engaged enough that he would come in. I could tell that my class was a safe space for him. He kind of came out of his shell a little bit. He'd come in and we'd spend some time usually, you know, before class or after class talking about the show, what happened on last night's episode or what do we think is going to happen here? We, it was a legitimate connection between he and I. And I could tell then that he felt like, at least when he came to me for that hour and a half a day that he was seen and that he was, that this was a place that he could be him. I love that story, Chris, because it reminds me of a student I had in middle school who I feel is similar in that he would always wear music related t-shirts. Some of them slightly terrifying, if I am perfectly honest, <laughs> crazy. And you know how band shirts, they're meant to be outrageous. And so I asked him about one one day, and he was one of those kids who, similar to Spanish, eighth grade science was not his dearest love. And so I was trying to find a way to connect a little bit. So I asked him about one of the one of his shirts, what, what the band was. He said a, a couple of relatively grouchy words about it. So I said, well, you know what? My son is is really into music, so I'm going to ask him. And you could see this little look of terror kind of go over his face because and which which meant to me that maybe it was not something that 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 he felt that myself, a, a woman of a certain age, maybe should be asking her her son about. But I did. I went home and I said to my son, so one of my students is wearing this this shirt by this band. 
So my son also was like, mom, you don't want to listen to that. So I'm like, oh, really? So tell me your name of the song. So I went back to school and I said, you know, and so we ended up, you know, having this little sort of dialogue go back and forth about this band and about what music he likes, whether there were any songs that I could actually listen to became our own little sort of inside joke, whether there was anything that he liked to listen to that I could actually listen to. I'm not going to say that it made him actually enjoy eighth grade science, but it made our connection and our relationship in class a little bit better. So uh, I think that kind of thing takes a little bit of a step towards forming relationships with your students. If you can find that one little thing to make a connection. I think, you know, and I would bet for that student that he remembers Miss Lovedall. All the teachers that he's had, he remembers Miss Lovedall. After teaching in the classroom for 20 years, I don't necessarily remember every student's name that I taught. But same token, I remember this kid because it goes both ways. I I looked forward to him coming into class because we did have that connection. It's a two way street that, that you give, but you also get from it. That same kid about the snapping turtles. I have a better story. It will be a short one, but he came in as a kindergartner and wore a t-shirt that was bright red. And if you, I know no one can see me, but I don't ever not have Carolina blue on. (laughs) So right now, even in this meeting, I got Carolina blue on my hat. He came in with a state red shirt on and is the back of the shirt, five years old says, I'd rather be lost in Raleigh than found in Chapel Hill. And we (laughs) bonded immediately because, you know, I use sarcasm sometimes. And most five-year-olds don't pick that up, but I said some kind of sarcastic comment to him and he just thought it was funny. And it turned into now he's in fifth grade. And even though I'm not at school, I've, I've been in a virtual meeting with him and, and brought up, I went to Chapel Hill recently. And, you know, it's just a, that connection, right? And what I think back on is through six years of knowing the student and and I have a lot of more stories and, and good memories is that I will, uh, you're right, Chris, like I will never forget when NC State played in the the big dance, it was when they were playing in the NCAA tournament. And I brought him down to have personal time with the big screen in the library to get to watch um, a couple minutes of the game. And, you know, it's just things like that that make school memorable for kids in a way that I may not be as librarian anymore, but I really hope that he always remembers that libraries are a welcoming place and a place to be an individual and a place to be, even if you go and it's a Tar Heel librarian, that NC State kids are still welcome. You know, like that's the message I hope it sends for him. And as the, as a kid, I had a very hard time in school and high school, especially, you know, there's a lot of librarians I know that are this way that they went to the library and that was a place where they could eat lunch by themselves without being harassed and the librarians would bend the rules, right? Or, um, you know, a teacher would pay attention and notice that I was having a hard day. And so on the flip end of, you know, you guys were telling these great stories and it reminded me of my little state friend, but being the kid who does feel comfortable at school when there's a lot of times where I didn't, it was really important to have an adult that noticed. So I think it's really important that, that we remember those things. Well, it brings me back to one of the things that she started her book off with, which is whether they are C, letter C, not S-E-A, or little kids in our classrooms or high school students, they are people. And we just have to keep that in mind. And when we do things like this, they can tell as teachers that we see them and we notice I wanted to jump into something that's really resonated with me since the very first time I read this book, because this was actually the first Brene Brown book I read. 
And I started to read the book. And one of the things that I needed and to know and that I put into practice pretty quickly was this idea of, of boundaries. And one of the best things I've learned, the best thing I learned about boundaries, and this is going to go back all to relationships, is if there are people that don't respect your boundaries, they're not your people. They're not on your square squad. They are not your square squad. Your square squad people are the ones who respect your boundaries. Because if they can't understand why you need that boundary and they don't respect it, they're not going to help you along the way. And I and you circle back. They respect your boundaries. They earn a marble. They get on your square squad. Boom, yeah. boom, boom. Again, thinking about kids, how many of them know how to build a boundary? I mean, we think it's inherent in kids, but it's really not right now. I know too many. I have too many young people in my life and in my family and and my friends' kids that I see that they have, especially as they've had to be very independent learners during the pandemic, they don't know when to take a break. They don't know when to go outside and get a walk. And I think it's just really important that when we think about these things for ourselves, it's really important that we also model that for the other people in our life. So whether you work with students and you need to model that for your students, or if you're an administrator listening, you know, modeling that for your teachers is just a really important thing. It goes back to building that trust, like Chris just said, and it goes back to having the right people in your life. Helping each other set those boundaries, helping each other do that earns you a marble. Just say it. I agree a hundred percent. It was very hard for me to understand that building boundaries was for me and for also the other people I was working with but that I had to have the people who respected them. Again, the back to the two-way street. And, and it really helped me kind of sort through the people who weren't. The thing that I wanted to bring us back to and end on for this episode that we've had plenty to share about is I've had a hard time getting people to pick up this book, even if they know who Brene Brown is, because they don't think they're leaders. They don't see themselves as being in that leadership position. And when you read the title and you think about this idea, you know, a lot of educators specifically don't necessarily believe that it's applicable to them. But as soon as, you know, the three, the three of us, I've read the whole thing. Stacey and Chris were, are working on the first part. But I think even just in that first part, you see that the definition of leadership is not what your title is. One thing that she's very, I, I absolutely love her definition of leadership. And she says, it's anybody who takes responsibility for finding the potential in people and processes and who has the courage to develop that potential. So you can't tell me that not every single educator is looking for the potential in people, whether you're working with students or whether you're an administrator or support staff working with the potential of the people that you work with. So I want to ask you who you think this book is for. What maybe has your definition of, of leadership evolved as you've been reading? I was struck by how many times the word leadership or leader is used in our evaluation. Teachers will you know, lead in some way, shape, or form, or even in the DLCs, you know, there's a leadership strand. In standard four, in the elements of the professional teaching standards, leadership is an element in there. Teacher leadership is consistent in everything we do. I think that this book, as you're reading through it, it gives you concrete examples that even though a lot of it is oriented towards her experiences as a business leader, leading her own company and speaking to leaders. She's also worked with school systems and education communities. So it's all intertwined and you can definitely see how this applies to everything that we're doing. You, you may have resistance, but 
stop being resistant. You just need to, you know, just jump right in. And it's very easy to listen to, especially if you're a person who you know, likes to listen and do something else at the same time. It's a very easy audiobook to listen to. I said before that I was reticent to start because dare to lead. Leadership is nowhere in my title. So I was kind of like, oh, man, how does this apply? Just like Stacy just said, when you get into it, you realize that it that it applies to so many things. And when we really do think about the standards and stuff that that word leader comes in many, many times. I even have said to my wife, my wife is a director in the mental health field and she's an IDHD director. And, and I said to her the other day, you know, this is something that when I get done with it, you should really listen to this book and take some of the things from it and apply them to your team. Some of the things that you talk about in your team could benefit and you could make some changes based on what Brene Brown is talking about in here. Who is this book for? It's really for everybody, like everybody. I'm appreciative of Molly for pushing me on this because I would not have ventured into it. And, I, and it's given me some food for thought and I can apply them to myself. I can apply them to the people that I work with. So I think that this is a catalyst for change. The message is very universal. And that's what I'm hoping we are communicating through the podcast is again, she's not paying us. We're not necessarily endorsing everything she says and does, but we do truly believe that there's some really good conversations to be had and some perspective for how this affects the three of us. And so we're hoping as you're listening, you're hearing how we're using this to learn and grow, affect some kind of change in the, in the work that we're doing. But we also believe that there's educators out there who may not see themselves as leaders, and yet there's a good chunk of what you're doing if you're taking that definition of, of cultivating the potential in people, that's exactly what teachers do. So there's something in here, hopefully, that will that will be helpful to other people. But in the meantime, we're going to continue our conversations as we read. And in the next episode, we've talked a bit about Stacy really loved the idea from this part one through three. So we're going to have to go backtrack a little bit to the idea of paint done for me. And that was a really interesting concept that we're going to talk a little bit more in depth on. We talked about failure in real life, that when we talk about needing to fail, to be innovative, that's a really easy thing to say. And it's a very, very hard thing to do. And there's not always environments. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And then one of my favorite things that she she talks about in this book, but she talks about a lot of times is this idea of the story I'm telling myself is dot, dot, dot. And that a lot of times we make things up in our heads to justify what somebody has said or done. but we don't always give them the benefit of the doubt and that using those words really helps to to level the playing field and, and have good conversation and instead of running on assumptions and Chris's things. Squandering opportunities for joy. Something I want to talk about. So we're going to talk about those things and more in, an, in the next episode. I'm excited about talking about this whole this whole phrase of painting done. That phrase, paint done for me, if you have the, the courage to really embrace that sentence right up front, really can save a whole lot of angst. So, so we're going to dig into that because I have thoughts about that as a student too. We're going to talk yeah. about it. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for our first conversation about the ILCs reading Dare to Lead. More episodes are coming, so we will keep this conversation going. Thanks for joining us. Podcast PDNC. It's not sit and get. It's listen and launch.
Thanks for listening to Podcast PDNC. We'd love to feature your ideas and expertise on a future episode. To contribute and to find out more information, please check out our website at bit.ly forward slash podcast PDNC. That's bit.ly forward slash podcast PDNC. Podcast PDNC was written, recorded, and produced by the NCDPI Digital Teaching and Learning Innovative Learning Catalysts, Molly Holloman, Stacy Lovedall, and Chris Bennett. It is available through our website, through Anchor.fm, and through Spotify, with more platforms to come soon. The sound effects used in this episode were taken from the BBC Sound Effects Library, which can be found at bbcsfx.acropolis.org.uk. Thanks for joining us, and we do look forward to hearing from you. The discussion of these tools and resources is not an endorsement from the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction, Digital Teaching and Learning, or Stacy, Chris, and Molly.